Hello and welcome to JG Ministries Bible Study, where we study God's Word. I'm Jeffrey, ordained minister and chaplain at JG Ministries, and I'm glad you joined in with us today. Be sure to follow this podcast and you'll receive notifications every time there's a new podcast, and be sure to share this podcast as well. You can also hear this podcast on Anchor and Spotify. Well, we are studying the book of Luke. We are unpacking chapter 9, so if you have your Bible, Go ahead and turn to chapter 9, because we'll pick up with verse 21. Let's get into it. Last time, we took a look, or finished taking a look, at the feeding of the 5,000. And we also heard Peter's confession of who Christ is. Now, we are going to take a look at the invitation by Christ to take up the cross. And we shall take a look at the transfiguration of Christ. So let's go ahead and turn back to our scriptures and pick up with verse 21, where Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. And he strictly warned and commanded them all this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, rejected by the elders, and be killed the third day. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed in his glory and fathers and of holy angels. But I truly, you shall taste death till they see the King of God. Now, looking at verse 21, following Peter's historic confession, the Lord commanded them not to tell others. Nothing must interrupt his pathway to the cross. Then the Savior unveiled his own immediate future for them. He must suffer, must be rejected by the religious leaders of Israel, must be killed, and be the third. Now let us not by the only sinless, righteous man who ever lived on this earth. They were spoken by the true Messiah of Israel. They were the words of God manifest in the flesh. They tell us that the life of fulfillment, the perfect life, the life obedience to the will of God involves suffering, rejection, and death in one form or another, and a resurrection to death. It is a life poured out others. Now this, of course, was the very opposite of the popular conception of the Messiah's role at that time. <clears throat> Men were looking for a saber-rattling, enemy-destroying leader, if you will. It must have been a complete shock to the disciples. But if, as they confessed, Jesus was indeed the Christ of God, then they had no reason for disillusionment or discouragement. If he is the anointed of God, his cause can never fail. No matter what happened to him or them, they were are on the winning side. Victory and vindication were inevitable. So the command not to tell others probably stems from two circumstances. The Jewish people, chafing under the dominion of Rome, were all too eager and ready to join a messianic revolutionary. And there was apparently an understanding that one should not claim messiahship for himself 
should first do the works of the mother as such by others. The miracles and signs they all had to be done first. So now we have the suffering and glory of the Son of Man. We have the invitation to take up the cross. And this is going to begin in verse 22. Now that Christ's disciples were well established in the belief of his being the Christ and able to bear it, he speaks of them expressly and with great assurance. It comes in as a reason why they must not yet preach that he would have them before the death would be the most convincing proof of his being the Christ of God. It was by his exaltation to the right hand of the Father that he was fully declared to be the Christ and by sending of the Holy Spirit after his ascension. And so this declaration had to wait till that was all done. Now, this statement is known as the first passion prediction. And although it had been foreshadowing of Jesus, Simon's prediction in chapter 2 and Jesus about the bridegroom in chapter 5, and now here in Jesus' words, is the first explicit reciting in Luke of the sequence of events at the close of his life. The entire following teaching on discipleship requires some basic understanding of the passion and indeed of the crucifixion since Jesus mentions the cross. The use of the term son of man is free and especially in connection with his passion. And also that the occurrence of the term in Matthew chapter 16 is not editorial but reflects Jesus's actual use of it in his initial question to the disciples. Now in verse 23, having outlined his own future, the Lord invited the disciples to follow him. This would mean denying themselves and taking up the cross. To deny self means willingly to renounce any so-called right to plan or choose and to recognize his lordship in every area of life. To take up the cross means to deliberately choose the kind of life that Jesus lived. Now this involves the opposition of loved ones, the reproach of this world. This means forsaking family and house and lands and the comforts of his life. It means dependence on God and the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's a pathway. It's organized attacks from established religious leaders. To deny self means suffering for righteousness sake and even slander and shame. It's pouring out one's life for others and death to self and to the world. But it also involves laying hold of life. That is life indeed. It means finding at last the reason for our existence. And it does mean eternal reward. Fully recoil for life of cross-bearing. Our mind reluctant to believe that this could be God's will for us. Yet the words of Christ, if anyone desires to come after me, mean that nobody is excused and nobody is accepted. Those who want to be Jesus' disciples can only truly be said to follow him.
when they have implemented a radical decision to deny themselves. This verb functions as a polar opposite to the knowledge of a thing or person. We should, therefore, on one hand, confess Christ, acknowledge him, and identify ourselves with him, and on the other hand, not set our desires and our will against the right that Christ has on our lives. It does not mean cultivating a weak, non-assertive personality or merely denying ourselves certain pleasures. Rather, it means we must live for Christ. The next words about the daily cross explain and intensify each day, not for self, for Christ. Now getting into verse 24, these two statements in verse 24 and also in verse 25 that we'll get to show the futility of clinging to one's life because that paradoxically results in losing the very self that one wants to preserve. The natural tendency is to save our lives by selfish, complacent, routine existences. We manage our appetites by asking luxury and ease, by living for the present, by trading our finest talents to the world in exchange for a few years of mock security. It's a false sense of security. But in the very act, we lose our, we lose our lives. That is, we miss the true purpose of life and the profound spiritual pleasure that should go with it. On the other hand, we may lose our lives for the Savior's sake. Men think us mad if we fling our selfishness and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We yield ourselves unreservedly to him. But this life of abandonment is a genuine living. It's genuine. It has a joy, a holy carefreeness, and it has a deep inward satisfaction that defies all description. In verse 25, as the Savior talks with the Twelve, he realized that the desire for material riches might be different against her. And so he said, in effect, suppose you stockpile all the gold and all the silver in the world, you could own all the real estate and all the property, all the stocks and bonds, everything of material value. And suppose that in your frantic effort to acquire all this, you missed the true purpose of life. What good would it do you? You would have it for only a short time only. Then you forever. Short life. A few toys that is eventually going into dust. The person who invests his or her life for God finds that such a life is not lost after all. Jesus then goes on to emphasize his point. The world, the disciple, are willing to forfeit is to be succeeded by the new order when the Son of Man comes in glory. In verse 26, we have another difference against a total commitment to Christ, and that is the fear of shame. It is completely irrational for a creature to be ashamed of his creator, for a sinner to be ashamed of his Savior. And yet, how many of us are blameless? The Lord recognized the possibility of shame and solemnly warned against it. 
If we avoid the same by leading nominal Christian lives, conforming to the herd, a man is ashamed of us when he comes to his own glory, and he comes into his Father's glory, and he comes into the glory of the holy angels. He emphasized the triple splendored glory of his second advent, his second coming, as if to say that any shame or reproach we may endure for him now will seem trifling when he appears in glory compared to the same of those who now deny him. The one who seeks gain by letting the world's view of Christ make him or her ashamed of the Lord, rightly corresponds to the glorified Son of Man. In verse 27, lastly, to encourage them in suffering for him, he assures them that the kingdom of God would now shortly be set up, notwithstanding the great opposition that was made to it. Though the second coming of the Son of Man is at a distance, the kingdom of God shall come in its power in the present age, while some here present are alive. They saw the kingdom of God when the Spirit was poured out, when the God reached, and the nations were brought to Christ by it. They saw the kingdom of God in the Gentile nations in their conversion and over the Jewish nation in its destruction. This can be a perplexing verse. Some who are standing here refers to either the disciples as a group as opposed to the crowd, or to some of the disciples as opposed to the rest of the disciples. There have been a number of different proposals as to what specific experience Jesus had in mind when he said these words. More likely, however, he meant the transfiguration. Luke is not to descend even sharply and is among things. It's a preview of the second coming of Christ, which this event is clearly connected with the reign of Christ. This mention of his glory forms the link with what follows. He now predicts that some of the disciples who were standing there would see the kingdom of God before they died. His words find their fulfillment in verses 28 to 36 that we're going to get into next time. The incident on the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples were Peter, James, and John. On the Mount they saw a, what it would be like of his kingdom. And peace in effect in the second epistle. And notice the continui continuity of the Lord's teaching in this passage. He had just announced his own impending rejection, suffering, and death. He had called his disciples to follow him in a life of self-denial, suffering, and sacrifice. Now he says, in effect, but just remember, if you suffer with me, you will reign with me. Beyond the cross is the glory. The reward is all out of the proportion to the cost. And with that, for this time, next time we will actually get Son of Man transfigured. We will talk about the transfiguration. So until next time, God bless each and every one of you, and keep living Christian strong.